friends, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. This is Cara, your host, your salonniere. Each episode, my job is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. But today I have a question first. What device are you listening to this podcast on? This may be really hard to hear. Chances are really high that you are touching a product with modern slavery somewhere in its supply chain. We may be unknowingly complicit in supporting these human rights violations somewhere beyond our own backyards. Yet today's guest, Krishna Patel, talks about how we can also be the solution. Krishna is an active strategist on initiatives to combat human trafficking on a global, national, and state level. After a distinguished legal career spanning more than two decades in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Connecticut, she's joined Grace Farms Foundation. There, Krishna's been at the center of organizing actions against human trafficking on a global and local level. Krishna has worked with global leaders and international organizations to identify ways to combat human trafficking in conflict, as well as ways to create more transparency in the global supply chains. This is part of her work at Unchain. To summarize all that, Krishna is one courageous warrior. Voila, meet Krishna Patel. Krishna, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. So great to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited about this interview and feel like there is so much for all of us to learn from your experience. Let's start with what you're juggling these days. You have two roles. One is Justice Initiative Director at Grace Farms Foundation, and the other is the president of Unchain. Can you talk about what each of those roles are? Sure. So Grace Farms Foundation is a private operating foundation located in Ukainan, Connecticut, and we're open to the public. And so for any of your listeners in the area or not in the area, um, I invite you to take a look on our website, gracefarms.org, and uh, come to Grace Farms. It's 80 acres in Connecticut, uh, built with an extraordinary vision uh, by the founders, and it was opened in October 2015. I started here in August of 2015, at that time as the general counsel and the Justice Initiative Director. And I came in um, at the request of the founders with a real focus on looking at modern day slavery, contemporary slavery, uh, with a goal of how we can combat it and if possible where we can eradicate it at a global, national, and a local level. Uh, through one of our major convenings, our global major convenings uh, with the United Nations University, looking at the issue of slavery in conflict zones. Um, this is particularly slavery now being adopted by non-state terrorist groups around the world. We were actually looking at how we could increase the awareness issue and the education issue. And one of the things that we really wanted to actually focus on is how the media and civil society could become more engaged. And it's through that process that Unchain came into being. And Unchain was actually the creative brilliance of WPP, which is um, one of the largest marketing 
advertising groups in the world, and it was two of their subsidiaries, uh, Geometry and J. Walter Thompson, that took on pro bono work for over a year to look at this issue and say, what would a global marketing and education campaign look like? And they're the ones that came up with the creative brilliance behind Unchain. Grace Farms continue to support Unchain, and we have since launched it as its own 501c3 and are now working very hard at looking at some of the more difficult issues behind corporate supply chain uh, work. It's still in a very beta world, and I can uh, talk about that a little bit more, but it's still not ready to be fully launched. So where is it at? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, if you actually look at Unchained.org, we do have this very kind of beta website. The entire creative, the entire marketing campaign has actually been completely uh, done. And I will tell you, as somebody who does not come at all from that background, it is really a brilliant uh, creative. And it was done by two separate teams, really focused, I think, on the millennials and the zennials. Uh, to figure out how to really speak to them and how we can actually put not just pressure on each other and corporations and do the advocacy necessary to educate, uh, but also to figure out how, as a society, we can really begin to understand our own complicity in this issue um, and empower ourselves to look at this. One of, I think, the biggest difficulties we've had with modern-day slavery is most people aren't aware of it, and yet it is now the second-largest criminal industry in the world. It is the fastest-growing crime in the world, and so much of it is because of our consumption. And the more of our world that you know continues to be connected, uh, there is this strange divide that is continuing to happen where our consumption in the global north is causing so much of the slavery in the global south. So what we're doing right now is we are actually working with um, some incredible academic institutions. Uh, I just finished work with Cornell, Cornell's Business School. We're working with uh, some incredible universities, including uh, Harvard Berkman Center, um, some other groups, Thomson Reuters Labs, to look at tech solutions in terms of how do you create standards? Like how does a corporation create standards where they can actually force traceability and transparency through a supply chain? The complexity of the world, right, is if you work backwards, even from the most simplest product you own, just take a chocolate bar, you're likely to find that when you actually go through the components right down to the elements of the ground, the cocoa, um, it spans you know, the globe and involves countries, in particular West Africa, um, where you have now a set of laws and economies and histories and this opaqueness in the supply chain. But when you really look at it, now you're looking at almost 2 million children on the ground involved in child labor, and many of them in outright slavery. And this is the chocolate that you and I and our children are consuming every single day. And so how do you actually create transparency and traceability in a way so that corporations are now held accountable? Uh, so that we can eradicate that and make sure it doesn't happen. And consumers uh, can play their own part in understanding both their complicity and their empowerment not to let that happen. This is such a mind-blowingly large topic. And, you know, just for the sake of the listeners, Krishna came into my world when I went to see a talk that you moderated at Grace Farms around these supply chain problems. It seems so overwhelming, right? Like when you just think of the size of the businesses that we're considering and the complexity of the product sometimes, right? Like a chocolate bar is one thing with a very small number of ingredients that you can trace back. But what about when it becomes a cell phone or something with 
hundreds, if not thousands of component pieces. That's exactly right. And if you actually take a look, um, if you look at the top five at-risk slave-made products that are currently being imported by the G20 countries, you are looking at those top five technology is number one. So our smartphones, our laptops, uh, electric vehicles, even medical devices, technology is number one. And so much of that is because, uh, one, the components, the raw components on the ground, what in, is involved in the making of a lithium battery, we can just take one of the minerals, uh, cobalt. And so much of the world's cobalt supply comes from the Congo. And anyone can just go look up the reports after reports of not just child slavery, but adult slavery and child slavery. In fact, there was an article from about a week ago where BMW just announced that they are no longer using any of the cobalt from the Congo because of the slavery issue. And that's just one of the minerals. There are many more minerals. There's a whole periodic table full of them. (laughs) Right. And, you know, that's just the raw materials. Now let's go to the manufacturing phase. Uh, There's also, we know, slavery tied to manufacturing and the production side of that. It's no surprise that technology is the number one at the slave-made product now in the G20 countries. It's about over $354 billion worth of slave-made goods, which are just the top five products going into the G20 countries, of which the United States is consuming approximately $144 billion. Again, just the top five. And the top five are technology, garments, fish, cocoa, and sugarcane. So Krishna, as people are listening, these numbers are staggering. We're not even touching the gory details of what slavery looks and feels like. I imagine that there might be some people listening that are already kind of just overwhelmed as well. How do we, as listeners, begin to unpack this or even just begin to see it in our own lives? I think the most important thing we do is begin to educate ourselves about it. And uh, I've actually listened to a few of your podcasts and you had a wonderful woman um, who uh, talked about her Instagram feed and uh, looking at conscious consumerism and just learning how to just begin to identify certain products and just becoming more of a conscious consumer. I recently, about two weeks ago, I did a TED Talk, a TEDx on this. And, you know, out of the six ideas I put out there, I, I said, you know, the most important thing we can all do is take a small step of just even changing one of our behaviors towards slave-made goods, whether it's the chocolate bar, the piece of fish, Um, how we choose to buy our clothes, and particularly as women, that is actually a very important part of this, not just because I think women are so much part of the garment industry in terms of our consumption, but because so many women are being made to suffer in slavery in the garment industry. And so I think we owe it to all of those women out there to really think through how to become conscious consumers. And some of this, it's so complicated. I wish I could offer you the app. I wish I could offer you the easy way to say this is how you can figure it out. It's not easy. And part of what Unchain is trying to do is force that traceability and transparency that doesn't exist right now. And But what I would ask everyone to do is begin to educate yourself. Unchain.org does have a list of resources um, on the website. Again, it is a beta website. 
but it's a beginning list of ways to begin to educate yourself on how to identify this. And what we're beginning to realize, there was an incredible Washington Post article from just a few days ago on the chocolate industry. And we're even beginning to realize in a very significant way that even the certifications and the labeling that we were all so hopeful would work for so many things like the food industry, um, they're really just not going to be sufficient to be able to deal with how complex our supply chains are. And I think at a very instinctive level, we all have to understand that there's an inherent tension going on, that as consumers, we want to buy things at the lowest possible price, that corporations and companies are going to want to sell us goods at the price that we want to buy them and make a profit. And there is a cost to that. There is a human cost to that. And we have to really understand that we have to think through that. You know, human beings are complex people and we want to enjoy our lives and seek pleasure in our lives. And that is a good thing. But we also have to understand the complicity in terms of what our economics are doing to the rest of the world right now. Both in, by, you know, in terms of our planet and its people. And they're both really tied in together. It's funny, as you were talking and saying, you know, there's no app, there's no list, Unchain has some resources. It makes me think, are you familiar with the book Drawdown? No, I'm not. So it's a book about climate science, and I am blanking on the author's name, but I can find it and I can put it in the show notes later. But it really is a compiled list of actions that people can take to improve our situation around climate change. And it they've really like broken it down. I feel like the area and the sphere that you're working in is so ripe for something like that, right? Like that it doesn't have to be perfect, but here are proven ways that have been researched and studied that can actually help dismantle this problem. And that is, you know, this is a problem that is so complex and so large. And for me, I go back to believing that slavery is the greatest human rights violation in the world, right? And the only way to dismantle and to, to actually combat this problem is to do it in that way. You have to take it piece by piece. You have to start doing individual actions that turn into collective actions. And as consumers, we're so empowered to be able to do that. I think what what concerned me and what caused us to really engage in a marketing campaign is for so many people, if you look at the images, if you were to Google images about slavery, they're dark images because it's a very dark issue and it causes people just to look away. And that's not what we want. We want people to feel so hopeful and empowered. And as consumers, we are very empowered. It was the single biggest concern I had in doing the TED Talk, that I didn't want people to feel ashamed or guilty in their complicity. I wanted people to understand that because we were part of the complicity, we were also the solution to it. But in order to be the solution, that we have to liberate ourselves. And liberating ourselves means that we have to understand that we don't want to actually eat or wear products that are made by the brutality of slavery. And I think, in just from an energetic perspective, right, which this may sound pretty woo-woo to someone who comes from a legal background and is doing the work that you're doing, but it's hard not to believe 
that all of that suffering is not also woven into the fabrics that we're wearing if we're talking about clothes or the chocolate that we're eating or the sugar that we're eating and taking that into our own being, right? Like it's, I feel like that can't be separated. You're not wrong. I mean, I, you know, I think the people, there's an entire spirituality component to this, but even practically, there's been DNA testing done cotton, right? Cotton is, is, which is why we talk about garments. Again, you're talking about all the raw materials in the garments, uh, but you're also talking about the whole manufacturing production side of the garment industry. And cotton continues to be a very, very difficult issue. And, you know, it harkened back to the, the transatlantic slave trade, right? And cotton in our own country. Of course. Right? And there has actually been testing done of cotton uh, from certain areas where there's actually been blood found uh, in the DNA of the cotton. And so, you know, you just, you understand the, the, the suffering. And when we talk about modern day slavery, you know, labor exploitation is different from slavery. Slavery has a legal definition to it. And uh, when you look at labor trafficking or uh, forced labor, the definition is compelled work. It is work, some type of commercial value, and it's compelled. It's done under forced fraud or coercion. The underlying principle there is you are not free to leave. Even child slavery is actually different from child labor, if you can believe it. And, you know, child labor is legal in many countries. It really is. Child slavery is something that's different. And you are talking about people who are just not free to leave. They're forced to be there. And I go back to, is there any greater indignity against a human soul than that particular crime? And by the way, you know, we live in a country where many, many years ago, we put laws in place where we do not permit uh, goods to be imported that are actually made from child slavery and slavery. And yet we have all these goods coming in, right? Of course. And it's because there are both government, um, there are commercial and even consumer incentives to create all this opaqueness in our supply chains. And so we live in this increasingly globalized yet divided world. You've worked in this sphere for a long time. So you've seen these problems from different perspectives. Can you talk about your background as a lawyer and working in the United States Attorney's Office? Sadly, I've <laughs> been a lawyer for uh, about 25 years now. And for the first few years, I think, like many lawyers, um, and I look back, it was, prob- it was actually a very good experience. I am thankful it was a fairly short experience. I worked at a large firm in New York. And then in 1999, I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, uh, which was probably one of I think the most important things I think that happened for me in terms of understanding uh, organizations and culture and the importance of doing the work of justice. And from then I was, I moved for family reasons uh, to Connecticut and was able to continue doing the work with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Connecticut. And there were about two consistent themes, in, I think, in my life. One was uh, working on issues relating to human trafficking. I got to run one of the first task forces in the entire country back in 2003. The United States government decided to test about 12 task forces in the country to look at the issue of trafficking. And at that point, nobody even knew what human trafficking was. And we started realizing we had a, a, a real issue with it in the 90s. 
there was uh, cases that were starting to get challenged because we were using the old laws. We were really using the 13th Amendment laws, which I won't get into too much detail, but required a lot of physical constraints, a lot of, uh, as you imagine, what the transatlantic slavery was at that time. And contemporary slavery doesn't have the same hallmarks. There's a lot of psychological controls, a lot of other controls. And we were really focused, I think, on our immigrant population in the 90s. And by 2003, in, in about 2000, the New Trafficking Victims Protection Act was passed. We started our task forces in 2002-2003. And by 2005, uh, I had two really large cases in Connecticut and they were both domestic sex trafficking of minors. In the United States right now, in terms of the numbers that we are dealing with across the board, is a very significant issue of minor sex trafficking of American girls, quite frankly. Oof. And uh, sex trafficking is, is a global issue. It's also very much an American issue, and it's something that you know is in all 50 states in our country. Uh, we also have seen significant labor trafficking, but we have not, I think, done as good a job with our labor trafficking as we, I think, as we have with our sex trafficking. We we are still not, I think, doing a good job kind of dealing with and focusing on all of the issues causing the vulnerabilities that is creating um, the victimhood for sex trafficking. I think we need to do better of that. And, and I think what is something that I want to really put out there is, you know, the U.S. can eradicate minor sex trafficking. That is something that's doable. And as a society, it's just something we should be doing. Of course. It's hard to believe this is a problem in modern times, yet here it is. Krishna, can you talk about what tipped you off originally? Was it a long, slow unwinding or was it a dramatic aha moment? So I went to college very young. I graduated high school very young and I had emigrated to this country. So I had come to this country with my mom originally. My dad joined later. I'd grown up in Kenya. But I came, I think, you know, really still connected very much to Kenya. It's Continued to spend a lot of summers there with family and grandparents, uh, but went to high school here, went, graduated young, went to college, and went to law school right away. And so graduated law school at 23, and not something I'm thinking I would re recommend to anybody. And so I am really young as a lawyer, but what I really want to do is some type of human rights law. And uh, while I was in law school, went back to work for the United Nations in Kenya, and really for reasons, you know, um, I think a lot of people can understand the bureaucracy of, of the United Nations, uh, realize that that might not be for me. Then I came and was really fortunate enough to get into something called the Department of Justice Honors Program. And it was, of course, 1994 and uh, the year that the government decides to shut down, right? It's the Bill Clinton, Newt Gingrich years. And to become somewhat disillusioned by our own government. And, you know, at that time, we had EDPA passed, which was probably one of the most severe anti-immigrant laws, the Death Penalty Act. And this, is, this was as a person, believe it or not, who, who I was. And so actually ran to a New York law firm, which was certainly not what I thought my career was going to be. 
you know, we realize in our life, our careers are never going to be straightforward, right? <laughs> and, no, if you've listened to my podcast recently, right. then you know, it's totally not straightforward. And there's a lot of things we think, you know, I'm, I'm in law school, and I'm going to do this great human rights work. For, and, and I was very compelled, particularly, I think, because of my upbringing and seeing societies um, where uh, legal systems don't work for people and, and justice systems don't always work for people, trying to figure out how I can work in those systems to help people, right? That didn't turn out to be the case. And what I will say about my time at the law firm is a few amazing things happened. I, you know, It was a very large, very well-respected New York law firm. I uh, was forced to be in a very challenging and a difficult environment. Um, I learned an incredible work ethic. I learned how to write. I learned how to do critical thinking in a very demanding environment. I learned how to work for very uh, difficult clients uh, and uh, at times very difficult partners. And, um, you know, I, I think it really trained me at a young age to work, you know, under some very challenging and difficult conditions and had my work reviewed and edited and criticized and kind of took every ounce of ego out of you that you even thought you could possibly have. And one of the amazing things that happened is I had a wonderful partner there who, uh, thought that I was somebody who probably would really enjoy trial work. And it is something that I really did love when I was in law school was I was, you know, really enjoyed doing mock trials and really did enjoy trial work, but I still never thought that is what I would do. And I had this highly unusual opportunity as a fifth year associate to actually go do a trial in a federal courtroom in the Southern District, which actually, if you know, large law firms in New York never happens. And through this unusual set of circumstances and a false advertising case, I got to get up in a courtroom and actually uh, cross-examine witnesses and do direct, you know, direct examinations when normally you're the 20th person, you know, carrying bags if you're an associate. Yes. After six weeks of trial, uh, I realized how much I love trial work. And, you know, it, you're in an environment that you otherwise really don't find much more enjoyable, right? You really don't. And you're just working hard and you're working all the time. I think I had worked every single day for six months. I that. can believe it. Like, as you were describing your experience, I feel like I was living the parallel in New York, except at an accounting firm. Right. And, right. I and it feels soul sucking, right? It Not only does it feel soul sucking, it might be a little bit different on the legal side of the house. You show up at the firm already having passed the bar, right? Like you don't get hired until you've passed the bar. Is that correct? Right. No, no, that's right. Yeah. So for accountants, it's different. We sit for the exam, but then we have to accrue. And I think I sat in Massachusetts to be a CPA. So that required two years of hours. So basically, not only was I having a parallel soul-sucking experience that you're describing, but it's also... And this is not meant to be funny considering the topic that we're talking about. It feels like indentured servitude oh, because yeah. you no, are no. working right. 100-hour weeks. You are just having to say yes. You're having to be the team player for every little thing. You're having partners and sometimes gentlemen that you worked with get a little bit handsy. And like there's so much unprofessional stuff that happens at some of these firms. And then at the same time, hoping 
that two years later, when you can print out that report of every billable hour that you've had, that you have at least one partner willing to sign a letter so you can actually get the license that you earned. It's bananas. Oh, that's, yeah. No, so it, for us, we usually take, it, you know, we usually take the bar in July and you can start working, but it's not dependent on the, and then you don't get the results till later, but it's not dependent on that. But it's the same kind of, you know, you think you're getting paid all this money and you are, right? I'm making yeah. a pretty oh. significant salary for, you know, being, you know, in my twenties in New York and, you know, have, I'm head of summer hiring and I have just obscene amounts of money to spend on that. But by the time you're done breaking down the amount of hours, I felt like I was making less than minimum wage. And saying no is not an option. And when you're told to show up on Saturday and Sunday in the evenings and, you know, and the work for the most part was not, you know, it wasn't work that I found particularly enjoyable. It's the other parts of the work that you just you understand your learning skill sets that have become very important in life. Yes. And you'll be able to apply in much more humane right. ways, hopefully. Correct. And so this tri- the trial thing happens. And I never thought, you know, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I really didn't. But I really enjoyed it. Um, and so one of the partners had said to me, you should think about applying to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And the thing about the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, it is the hardest office in the country to get into, Right. Um, it is not a joke to try to get into that office, and it is a really extraordinary office. The other thing, honestly, is I never thought I wanted to spend my life or any part of my life putting people in jail. So it is pretty funny that I've been a prosecutor for 16-plus years, and I have put a lot of people in jail for a very, very, very long time. And, you know, talk about how career paths just change. And so because, so I literally went in thinking, okay, you know what? I'm not sure what I want to do. Nothing's working out. And maybe I'll go learn how to be a trial lawyer and I'll use that somehow to go, you know, do something in the world that'll matter and be able to, to represent victims or to represent, you know, women or to, to go do something then. But that seems like a skill that I think I have an ability to do that I should then cultivate. And I thought, you know, yeah, I really like it. So I went into the best office in the country and not sure how I got in, but went into the best office in the country with such an extraordinary culture. Right. And and it felt I to this day so fortunate to know that I was able to align myself with an organization whose mission was about accomplishing justice and uh, that's what I was taught to do. And I was also taught something so much more important, that justice was not about winning or getting outcomes. Justice was about ensuring the rule of law and fair process. And that if you didn't do that properly and with integrity, even if you won, you actually you know, had not done justice. That it's tainted in some way. Yes, yes, in, in a big way, in a big way. And, you know, by people who are so smart and so good and could have done anything anywhere in the world. And, you know, who also taught me other things in life. Um, They taught me the importance of having um, a building perspective and not being so caught up in winning. And that the way to have multiple perspectives is to have other things in your life that you care about. That if you become too impassioned and too connected, you can't build up 
Um, you know, that you need to look at things close up with emotional intensity, but you need to also look at them at the same time with detachment. Yes. And the only way to create that detachment is to actually have other things in your life that matter to you, whether that's your family, whether that's an incredible hobby, whether that's whatever that is, go find something else in this world that you care about and love. I will tell you, I think two of the most important lessons that have carried with me in life and, you know, so I ended up moving into another wonderful, wonderful U.S. attorney's office, having both my family. I had my son was born in New York and, uh, you know, we went through a very trying period as an office because 9-11 happened. Yes. And so when I got to move, by the time I moved to the U.S. attorney's office, my son was born. I was down in um, I was down in that area during 9-11. We were as an office so tried during that period of time. My son was born on September 25th, 2001, and we decided as a family to move because so it wasn't just 9-11, it wasn't just all the terrorism, it wasn't that I was so close to it, it was the anthrax, it was the multiple bombings, it was so much of the other issues that we knew about, and, and the world had changed. But right before 9-11, we were starting to look at the trafficking issue, particularly in New York. There were some really significant cases that had been done. We realized our, particularly our immigrant population was very vulnerable in New York to being trafficked. And so there was a period of time where our, all of our lives were focused on the counterterrorism issue. And then when I was able to move to Connecticut, I was uh, then able to go back and focus on this. And in some amazing way, I was able to take the work I was doing at the U.S. Attorney's Office and align it with what I always wanted to do, which is the human rights work, right? So I was probably not the person who ever wanted to be the guns and drugs prosecutor. It's interesting because I spent a lot of my uh, life also doing counterterrorism work. But I was the person who was then able to take the enormous power of the Justice Department and use it to do the human rights work that I think I always wanted to do. Was that something you consciously were sort of tossing forward onto the horizon saying, that's that's where I want to head? Or was it more roundabout? I think as soon as I knew that that I was so interested in the trafficking issue, because to me it was it was all of it, right? It was uh, trafficking has such a huge component on the gender issue. So more than 70% of victims of trafficking are women and girls. So there's this incredible gender by, you know, gender discrimination there. It's on, on the modern day slavery issue. There's also just, it's a global issue. It's vulnerable communities across the board. And for me, as soon as I saw that, and I saw it right when I stepped into it, um, that was an area I wanted to work in and I stepped into it right away. And I, when I came to Connecticut, uh, I actually took on a counterterrorism spot. So every office in the country had been given a counterterrorism spot. And I remember the first thing, one of the first things I had said to the new U.S. attorney who had just gotten appointed, right? President Bush had been appointed, the new U.S. attorneys got appointed. And I said, I want to do uh, the counter-trafficking work. And I think a lot of, you know, well-meaning uh, people who became some of my closest friends in the office said, you know, we don't have that issue here in Connecticut. It's really a New York thing. This is, you know, again, early 2000s. But the U.S. attorney said, just go ahead. You know, you're going to have to do all the other work, but just go ahead. And I did. And I think the remarkable thing for me about being in a smaller office in Connecticut and having a family, I'll be honest with you, is 
I was able to do a lot of work and be able to do, so I ran our, our first child exploitation. So the world of cyber exploded in about 2008. And for the first time, we started seeing child exploitation on the internet. So I ran our Project Safe Childhood at the same time I was running our, our trafficking task force. Uh, by 2010, I was, I was supervising also our counterterrorism. It included our, you know, our, what you think of as, as terrorism. But for us, it also included a huge cyber component. And that became really helpful to me to really understand how the entire world of cyber was actually working, including the dark web, where so much of this was happening, and so much of it globally was happening. And so it really all started kind of working for me. And there's other areas, too, that I intentionally stepped into. Civil rights was a big issue. I ended up uh, prosecuting one of the largest police brutality cases. But it was definitely gave me the ability to go in and purposely do the cases I wanted to do. And many of the cases, most of the cases I worked on, involved incredibly vulnerable populations of victims, right? Including child victims. So I did an incredible amount of international cases. One of the most difficult cases I did, I just saw a civil settlement on this week. And it was the largest child exploitation case out of Haiti. It was pre and post earthquake in Haiti, bringing you know homeless children from Haiti to, into a Connecticut courtroom, right? And a lot of that kind of victimization and and honestly re-traumatization that happens yes. from putting someone through a justice system. I think that is so important that you're mentioning that has been so much of the learning work that I've done and so much of the part of the work that I kind of want to think through now in terms of some of the work, the incredible work I get to do now. So one of the things I'm involved in right now is working with a group of people to help set up a task force in Haiti, uh, particularly around child exploitation. And it's a USAID grant that was given to Lumos, J.K. Rawlings Foundation, and we were brought in to help set up the entire law enforcement task force because of, of the work uh, in the Perlitz case, in the Haitian case that we had done. And, you know, one of the most important things for me now in setting up the task force, and this was always, we took a very victim-centered approach to our task forces, and I'm really proud of the work that I've done. I think one of the hardest things for me has been how much we demand of our victims and how much re-traumatization happens to a victim during the process of seeking justice? And is there a way to do that better? That is a huge question. Mm -hmm. I feel like I have another question I want to back up to first. What I'm hearing in what you've created for a role for yourself, and it sounds like it sounds like it's evolved since you left the Southern District. I imagine maybe you were sort of cutting your teeth in that role as well. But what's fascinating to me is you've molded these roles for yourself. Was that something intentional? And also, for women listening who are trying to make a pivot or do work that's more aligned with who they are, how did you do that? So I think two things have happened. I think some of it is intentional and deliberate, and some of it is, I think, recognizing that at times in your life, you're just unhappy, right? And you have to make a change because the core of who you are now is no longer happy. And so, you know, there's an early part of your life, and I go back to the law firm days or your accounting days, 
you have to learn a certain set of skill sets. You just do, right? Yep. It's a boot camp. And- <laughs> it is a really fast, hard stamina challenge of right. boot camp. And through that, though, you're learning things like perseverance and grit and resilience. And um, these are important things in life. And they're important things to continue to cultivate as well, right? Because you need them all for all of the challenges you're going to face. And, and by the way, I think understanding you're going to constantly face challenges and overcome them uh, is is something that, that I think is really, really important. I also think, though, that there's times where you just realize um, change is, is something that you kind of always want in your career. And so part of doing the work for me was, uh, so it, the Southern District for me was learning how to do trial work, honestly. It was learning how to build teams and learning how to manage and, and lead teams, right? You're leading an entire investigative team, how to do investigations and do them well. So that is what got tested, I think, for ten a good 10 years for me. And I went from doing small cases to really large, really complex, really international, global cases. And then all of a sudden, when you're doing big global cases, you now understand you can understand policy. You can understand what works and doesn't work. And so now all of a sudden, you know, I found myself saying our policies are off, whether we need to change our national laws or whether we need to help inform international laws. And so I got put on teams to go help uh, do work overseas, which is something I wanted to do. And there's always work life limits, right? Um, I was asked to take overseas assignments and um, there's a child who calls me mom at home. <laughs> so that was not- <laughs> and it's very hard to mom from another continent. And, you know, I've had a conversation with an astronaut who spent close to three months on a space station as a mom. And she's like, it's really hard to check in on homework when you're on a space station. Right. And so, you know, and it's funny because, um, you know, my son is now 17 and part of a lot of, you know, we, we make worse work life balance choices. That is what we do in our life. And I think women more so than men. And I don't think that has, you know, there's a lots of reasons why I think that's still going to be a hard hill. I think I have a husband who has been very involved in parenting and that's the only way we're going to get to equality but that's still something that we're still pretty far away from. Yes, the emotional labor is not evenly divided in most households. And something about the fact that this was not, um, up until he could, my son could understand the concept of time. If I left, it was a problem. If my husband left, it was perfectly fine. And I don't know what that was, you know. I, I don't know what to say about that. And my mother once said to me, um, are you really going to complain about that? And I think the answer then was no, I'm not, you know, I'm not. And so my travel got limited early on. Now it's very funny because um, I, I will never be a mother who will be accused of being a helicopter mother or I think they call them lawnmower <laughs> mothers. Or um, My son, uh, for, for very personal reasons, we had a, a little bit of a difficult family uh, issue uh, this year just in, in, in terms of, you know, we're at that stage where our parents are all getting older. And yes. um, my son recently, who is now a junior in college or a rising senior, said, uh, so I think the satellite mom needs to actually come to Earth. Uh, so we can figure out colleges. And so I said, I've been called a satellite mother. It's fascinating. So I'm somewhere hovering around the earth at all times. 
Just the orbit, the orbit is a little bit bigger. <laughs> I think the astronaut mom is, that's probably more. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I now think that is what I will be fully labeled as, as I was in his life. A satellite satellite mom. <laughs> yeah, so I was generally there. <laughs> so, and I think he will be that much more independent and better off for it. So. And that's got to be a hard challenge for you, right? Like you want to be there as a mom, but then professionally you are working on these cases that could take all of your time, all of your energy, and then some, right? So my 30s were exhausting, right? They were exhausting. And so I had him when I was 31, 30, yeah, 31 or 32. And they were all, you know, I just feel like, uh, my 30s, right? You're just, you still don't really know what you're doing in your 30s, right? Do you're we ever, through. Krishna? Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm here at 42 and I'm like, like do we know what we're 40s, doing? You're at least now are saying, yeah, at least I don't care about all of this part of it, right? Yes. Um, but in your 30s, like, you know, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm like, you know, have all these bosses and you still don't know what you should care about and what you shouldn't care about. And you're still building yourself, and there's still so much insecurity, I think, and vulnerability. And, you know, it's when you are confronted with a challenge, you overcome it, right? Repeat, rinse, repeat. And when you do that, the confidence, and you build yourself up as a person, and and you build up, I think, your moral center, your constitution, your values, your integrity, um, your spiritual side, and, you know, and all of a sudden, all of that guilt of, you know, parent of not being there, you know, I sent him to a Montessori school, and I remember thinking, you know, these parents who would spend all this time, you know, I sent him to a school where you're supposed to just be independent, and, you know, let the child go, and follow the child, and, and all these parents with the gingerbread houses, where I'd go to Stu Leonard's and go buy his gingerbread house, and say, here, do whatever you want with it, right, <laughs> and, you know, this guilt I had that I was psychologically damaging my child, right? And now I look at him and I'm thinking, you know what? He's going to be just fine. He's going to be absolutely just fine. And I think, you know, some of this, I go back, you know, my mom brought me here as a single mom for the first three years of her life in in a very tough, hard way from Kenya. And uh, we were not well off. And so she didn't have time with me. And I was totally a latchkey kid. And you know, it is, it, it is not about what you say to your child. It is about what you do and how you live, right? It's how you model your life. And to me, it's if you live your values, that is what your child's going to see every single day. That is what they're going to feel every single day. And if they're, you know, they're going to know, you know, I know I was so loved because of the sacrifices that were made by my parents. I really do believe that is so much more valuable. Uh, he, you know, I think... He understands the work that I have done, um, I think, to some degree in this world. But he also understands that for our family, living a values-based life is the most important thing. In, in, you know, in a town in Fairfield County where I'm a little concerned about the values that are being lived. And it's a struggle. And I guess one of the questions I want to ask you as you share this is, what has helped you decide what to care about and what not to care about? So I think I have been fortunate to have inserted myself in a work culture where I have worked with a group of people who could have gone anywhere and had an outward definition of success that, uh, particularly financially, but chose not to. 
chose to have a meaningful, purposeful life instead in terms of saying, I'm going to tie myself to this mission of trying to do justice in the world. Uh, so I think a work culture. And, and a work culture, I will tell you, you know, what's so interesting is, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the most difficult times at my work, even though I went through 9-11, one of the most difficult times for me was I was actually the supervisor on duty during Sandy Hook, during the Newtown shooting. Oh, wow. And, you know, uh, there's a group of us that looked very hard at the, the entire kind of forensics behind why that happened and, and the school shootings and also because of the counterterrorism work, kind of, you know, the amount of young men, right, engaging in, in, in very um, violent behavior in our world. And... You know, so we're looking at issues of isolation and, you know, this whole period of time right now from 2007 to 2017, where we're seeing such high rates of, of isolation, right? And isolation is so different from solitude. Solitude is something I have actually sought from time to time. Uh, I can imagine in your work. Young child, right? <laughs> so, um, but, you know... And isolation and what it does, particularly, I think, to young men, right? Um, and this is also because, like I said, the counterterrorism side, because we were so focused on ISIS and all of that for a while. Our society is, we have this incredible pervasive connectivity that's going on globally, and yet we're so locally, right, isolated as human beings. And yet I worked, I worked in an environment where the human connectivity was so high, constantly. You have to work with each other in teams, like the, you know, Prosecutors and investigators just work together in teams. You don't work, you know, through technology. You, you know, you may use technology, but you're still working together in teams constantly. And the human interaction I've always been involved in is very high. And it's the same thing with my family. Um, you know, we had dinner every night. We had we tried to have breakfast every night. It's just having connectivity, and we have a, a large extended family. And I think both of those things have grounded me. Um, there is a spiritual component that I sought. It's very funny because also in one of your, I had a chance to listen to a few of your podcasts and Pema Chodron came up in one of your podcasts and yes. she's at Omega every May and September. And for, since my early thirties, I have tried to get to, you know, I've gotten there. Um, I've missed it a few times, but I've tried to really get there and it's really a reset for me is this, you know, the secular kind of Buddhist teaching. And so, and there's this really fun, I, I grew up in a, in a Hindu Buddhist background. I'm not really, uh, I, I don't, I'm not part of any religion, um, but I will say that secular Buddhism appeals to me. And there's this really interesting phrase that says, you know, when you're ready, the teacher will come. And I think that was true both for me spiritually, and the, that's been true for mentors in my life true at work like when you're really ready I think somebody does show up to help you so much so and I feel like I'm I'm hearing you talk about secular Buddhism and I feel like that's where I'm constantly flirting or spending my spiritual energy these days despite having been brought up Roman Catholic and you know you go to church every week and this is what it looks like and you genuflect when you're supposed to and you stand when you're supposed to and yeah, I think what you're talking about really resonates with me on a deep level. And I think, you know, thinking back to earlier in this conversation, you know, you use the word detachment, but in my mind, I heard the word remaining unattached or unattachment. 
right? Yeah, and like, it's very different. Detachment is not about not being emotional. It's about just being able to separate enough to be able to really have perspective, right, and be able to put the space between you. And and she follows the secular teachings amazingly well. And I remember at times, you know, just being when you get too caught up in something, right? When you just get too um, you know, you, you go down a storyline too much. You just get too caught up in it. How just to break that, right? And how to look at it differently. And the other thing, which I value greatly, is the teachings on humor and playfulness in your life, to bring humor and playfulness to your life. You know, to look at things with curiosity, to look at things with humor and playfulness, particularly when, you know, you're doing so much of the work I was doing at times. And, uh, and I had people around me who valued humor, not insulting, not mean, but just, you know, humor to bring perspective to things. But I remember one of the most important teachings, and it's a few times I actually read all the books that were signed, <laughs> but she talked about um, cultivating fearlessness, right? And the, the flip side of that is cultivating courage. And it's not about not being fearful. It's just how to get through fear, right? We're always going to be fearful. And, and it's just about the more you learn how to get through it, you know, the more you, you'll just be able to do it. And that's how you actually cultivate courage and moral courage, kind of being a warrior for courage. And, it, you know, it really does work. It, you know, I know it may sound hokey, but, like, the more you practice it, the more it does work. As someone who meditates daily for years now, like, it works. And it doesn't sound hokey to me at all. I, I guess... What are some of your favorite teachings or what are some of the ideas that really stick out for you that can be actionable around cultivating humor, cultivating playfulness? Like, what does that actually look like for people who may not be reading Buddhist texts like you and I are? So, you know, playfulness is the moment of... um anger, the moment of, uh, you know, you know, the feeling inside when you're becoming so hostile to something, right? So um, upset about something, you know, that when, you know, you're feeling you're turning that thing so concretely into something that if you can just stop and separate, look at it, and, you know, almost like a, a ball, just look at it 360 and turn it into something playful and start bringing something, you know, humorous to it. And I think if you practice it long enough, you act, it does actually can be funny. Like if you can actually make it somewhat of a parody, right? Absolutely. Um, if you can separate yourself, you're no longer there and you're watching it like a movie and you can separate it and turn the drama into a comedy. And I think it's just helpful to you to just not get caught up and stuck in that. Um, and then you can come back to it and try to deal with it. And and it's I think because there is so much conflict and disagreement in our work lives and with people and certainly in our country right now. I also think it's so important to engage. I think one of the things that scares me the most is that people are choosing to be neutral or just put, be on the side. And I think that is a really dangerous thing. And so I think that we need to engage, but instead of going to places of hostility, which trust me, as somebody who gets very passionate about things, that was a lot of work for me. It was a lot of work for me to do. But I, I will tell you, I have had people around me that are like really amazing with humor. 
So the humor piece actually was, was something that um, I think I was just fortunate to have people around me to help with all of that. And I think what you're describing as a practice, like the sort of being with anger, or it makes me think of a meditation I had done. I had twisted my neck. I, I've had some bulge discs in my neck for, I think, going back to an early gymnastics injury that just kind of got funky in my 30s. And every now and again, I will move my head in too many directions at once or and be in pain. And one of the meditations, and I think this touches on where you were going with anger, is really almost like poking it with a stick, right? Like recognize you're feeling anger or recognize you're feeling pain and then actually exploring it in a really kind of funny way. Like what temperature is your pain? What color would it be? And just start to think about it. Like, is it you know, is your pain, like if you visualize it, is it like a metal? Is it malleable? Is it a gel? Is it a liquid? Like, and actually trying to just be with it. And then somehow it takes the energy out of it at the same time. Like the more you question it and look at it and just poke it with that mental stick for a little bit, the less power it seems to have over you and the less energetic drain. Yeah, correct. And it's, I think there's two ways. I mean, it depends how stuck you are. You know, we harden it, right? We harden the anger. We harden it and then we hard and we become attached to it. Like we become the anger. Like why is this why is this happening to me? And it and if there's one of two ways that I found work, either you take the anger as its own thing and you look at the anger and kind of go through what is this anger and go through all of that questioning or you go look at the pain as its own thing and it's either asking all the questions and instead of making it so hard asking enough questions that almost becomes like a cloud and it's all of a sudden you realize there's nothing there or it's almost like trying to make a parody of it right uh, kind of as a theater and making it kind of funny and what would it look like and what is it, you know, and but you separate yourself from it all of a sudden. And sometimes it's hard to do because we put a whole storyline behind it, right? We become so attached to our story. And, um, and we want our story to be right. And, you know, everybody else has to understand our story. And, you know, we're completely part of our story. And it's just to separate ourselves away from it. And, and there's so much of that that I think it's just about separating ourselves, and I say unattached, you know, detachment, unattachment. But you're right; it is valid that you have pain. It really is. But I think for you to address your pain and how you want to live with it and how you want to move forward with it, it's not to let it define you. Yes, I found a mantra really interesting not that long ago from a book called Self Compassion by Kristen Neff, who has studied how to inject self-compassion into our lives and the first part of the mantra is this is a moment of suffering suffering is part of life and that sort of is meant to kind of remind us like it's not forever like what we're feeling is what we're feeling and this is temporary because sometimes we get stuck in that place of if we're feeling anger if we're feeling hostility or I can only imagine the amount of not good feelings you have felt doing the work that you're doing, that it's easy to feel like things are going to stay stuck in that gear forever. And then the idea that suffering is part of life, like that we as human beings 
all experience this. Like, it's not just happening to us, but it's happening to everyone. And that if we can remember that, it it doesn't have to completely consume us. And I, I just think those two lines, there's, you know, a couple more lines after that about invoking self-compassion for ourselves and invoking comfort for ourselves. But just those first two lines feel so powerful on their own. Yeah, no, completely. And, um, you know, these are Buddhist four noble truths, right, about uh, suffering. And this is, it is, it is to be human is to suffer. It's just how we decide to respond to it, right? And this is, this is also like aging, right? Yeah, it's coming. (laughs) There's no stopping it. (laughs) It's how we decide to respond to it. Krishna, I listen to you today and I hear about your career and I just look at every point you've been so hardworking and so high achieving, right? Like you're finishing law school at 23. You go to a hellish New York firm where I can totally resonate with your experience. Then you end up in the Southern District. And then the topics that you are touching on, right? Like in law enforcement, just you're not dealing with the best in people at any given moment. It's usually quite the opposite. And you were seeing it on such a global, massive, complex way. How have you not burnt out? Or have you? Oh, I've, I've had. Um, yeah. No, I've had both. Um, I've had some very difficult periods. Uh, I think the, the one in particular uh, that comes to mind was when Sandy Hook happened. Three things conflated at once for me. The Haiti case had just finished, and we had had a, you know, even though that ended incredibly well, we had a very difficult period. We had two very difficult periods in the Haiti case. One, the earthquake happened, and we lost some children. Uh, and second, because of the legal legal technicality in that case, my entire charging, my indictment actually got dismissed at one point. And you I want to talk I can't even imagine. Yeah. Like, what, <laughs> what, what happens, like, when you've put, I would imagine, what, thousands of hours into that just, case at that point? It, and then... It, right. And it's, it, it was because of a jurisdictional issue. And it was a venue issue. And, and here's the thing. It, it doesn't even matter all of the work I did or all the work the agents did, which was tremendous under insanely difficult circumstances. Um, you know, taking child forensic teams and agents and, you know, generators into uh, parts of Haiti and finding homeless children and trying to get homeless children to talk about being uh, sexually assaulted by a man in Haiti, right? Talk about just, right? Just talk about homosexuality in Haiti. But, you know, we were their only hope. Like, we were their only hope in, like, in all of this. And, and what the courage it took for them to come forward, and some of them were really young, and what they were going to suffer in their own societies, and the fact that we couldn't even really protect them. And so for the indictment to actually get dismissed on that day was just like, you know, they, they put so, even though we, I, I am so careful to tell victims that, you know, this is not on them, and, and all I can do is the process. That's all I can do. I can't guarantee anybody a result. When I tell you it was heartbreaking, um, it was just one of the most heartbreaking moments. And, you know, what happened in the end, listen, um, was able to, to get it done, was able to get him to plead, believe it or not, in Connecticut. He's in jail. Like, you know, 
And these victims just finished a settlement with over $72 million that was collected. Um, and so, none of which. Unbelievable. I know. And it just actually got reported this past week in the New York Times. But it was the same lawyer, the spotlight lawyer, Michael Garabedian, who came in on the civil case. But in, a, in, in real time, it was devastating. Uh, Sandy Hook happens. And, you know, to see babies get just shot like that and, and it, trying to understand what makes someone do that was just so hard. And at the same time, there was a third case going on with somebody. He had to have probably been the most sadistic child predator I ever dealt with. The victims I found were four-year-olds in Nicaragua, you know, six-year-olds. Like, just, but it was sadistic what he had done to them. And so all three had conflated at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, on the counterterrorism side. And, and it, I will tell you, it was finally a burnout. What, what people don't realize about Newtown is just how many law enforcement were not able to actually clear psych tests, you know, just, just were, were, you know, suffered during that period of time. To see children get hurt, and, and I think what happened for me in that moment was this belief that as a society, perhaps one of the most fundamental things I believe we have a role in doing is protecting children. And I also, I think it was, I think it was Mandela who talked about, you know, if you want to see the soul of a society, look at how we treat our children. And we're not doing a very good job protecting them. We're just not. And, you know, if you look at our school shootings and if you just look at the, the amount of sexual abuse that's happening, it was a very, very difficult time for me. And so I did, it, you know, I did. And one of the, you know, I did pivot at that time intentionally. You know, it was interesting because I, I took on the police brutality case. I took on just doing kind of more hardcore, like, espionage cases. But cases that didn't really, um, the, the police brutality case did, but the espionage cases didn't involve victims anymore, right? It involved the U.S. government was a victim. Um, but the I, I stopped doing victim cases for a while uh, and really kind of thought through what, you know, what I wanted to do moving forward. And so you do, I think it really does take a toll on you. And I think you do have to protect yourself. And I think you kind of have to understand when you see the signs coming. When I was, uh, I was a supervisor for a long time. And I'll even tell you on the child exploitation cases, I was very careful to ask people if they had children of the same age in the case, if, um, and, and this may feel strangely like a gender bias, if women were pregnant. I'd ask them to be very careful about not taking on the cases during their pregnancy. They are such damaging cases, and you know, and they leave such an indelible harm on the victims. And to go through that kind of emotion, and we don't have the support systems in place that we should have as part of our justice system to deal with all of this. What types of support would you like to see? You know, we need better mental health support for victims immediately mm-hmm. mental and like and and it needs to be professional care it needs to be you know even if you take sandy hook for example law enforcement are not trained to actually even understand what was happening let alone provide the kind of mental health support to parents of those children um, i'm not sure anybody is honestly but you know at least psychiatrists are better prepared to understand what was happening in terms of the trauma. Um, You know, and and the thing that people don't understand is, 
you know, when we have these shootings, we have um, things that are happening constantly. Because our world is sadly so, there are so many psychotics in our world. Uh, one of the cases I prosecuted was a guy, weirdly from Venezuela, who immediately called and started claiming to be uh, the shooter to Newtown families and started calling and saying he was him and he was directly outside and he was going to, you know, do all sorts of things. And, you know, this is not unusual when these shootings happen. I mean, there's so many other things that, you know, there's all this other stuff, this crazy stuff that goes on that you just are kind of like the amount of trauma that, that they're suffering is just, it's, it's really extraordinary. And you know, over and over and over again. Oh, right. It like stop. it's the it initial trauma, stop. then these completely bonkers moments like you just described. I'm sure that's one media. of many and social right. media. And then that's all before you even get to a trial where you're expected to live through it in the most unemotional, probably uncomfortable way possible. And, you know, understandably, and I do understand this, you know, our entire system of justice is set up to protect the rights of an accused, right? True. You know, so it feels really hard on on a victim, right? Because everything is set up to to protect the rights of uh, the accused. And so that is also something that, you know, is feels so hard for a victim, understandably. And so, you know, going through all of that is hard. But, you, you know, like you take something like that and then you have the social media side to me has gotten toxic, right? Um, you have everything <laughs> That's from putting just, it mildly. Right. You have everything from just people like doing and saying things that are just are so poisonous and so completely inhuman to the things like, you know, like, the Alex Jones and this was all a conspiracy, right? Yep. And this is just what our new culture is. And I don't understand it. I don't get it. But it is really, it, it is causing a lot of pain in our country. It really is. From your vantage point, where you've seen, literally, Krishna, you have walked through the cesspool of, of humanity in the work that you do and still are probably trudging through it albeit from a different vantage point now. From your collective experience, where do you think the toxicity is coming from? Or maybe conversely, what do you think we can do to begin turning that around? I think technology is a big part of it. And and I'm going to say technology is not what we need to blame. We need to blame ourselves. Uh, technology to me is neutral, right? It's what we decide to do with it. It's the conduit, right? Right. And it's, you know, so I go back to, there's these studies, and I don't know what to say about this, but, right, so you're seeing the highest rates of isolation, the suicide rates increased dramatically, depression increased dramatically between 2007 and 2017, right? The studies that have been done out there. And, um, you know, people talk about the recession starting in 2008, but it was 2007 with the iPhone, right? It's the introduction of the iPhone. And so if you were talking about, you know, this idea that we're all so willing to live in a virtual world, and is it that, you know, our human connections are lost, and we know the idea of compassion and empathy that comes, right, from direct human contact, that we understand probably I now know, right, that the most important thing in my life, I so I just celebrated my 50th birthday. Congratulations. Um, Happy know, birthday. Thank you. Um, I now know probably the most important thing is our relationships in our lives, right? We know this. 
in terms of our own lives. And when they're not good, they're, I think our lives are, are really about suffering and isolation. And But when they are good, I think we feel like we have very happy lives. I think I think happiness is something that we have to work hard to accomplish, and that's how it comes. And it's by mastering skills and, so, and handling challenges and learning moral behaviors, but it's also cultivating kindness and gratitude, and that comes from human behavior. And we are at this, I think, incredibly transformative time in our, our world. I can only liken it to what I feel like must have been you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, you're having a transformative time with technology. So I feel like one day there was no electricity, no trains, you know, no cars, no airplanes. And in a, in a short period of time, you would have lived with none of that. And you could have lived in a time when all of that came. And I yes. feel like we are living at a time when you're about to see you know, the transformations that are about to come, what we're already seeing, you know, AI and we're seeing tech, you know, the connectivity, pervasive connectivity coming not through with just with the internet, you know, what the moves with that you're about to see, the 5G, all of it that's happening, that the entire world is moving to digitalization. Um, and great things are gonna happen with that in the same way that great things happened with all of that. And some really destructive forces are going to happen. And that's just about all of that movement happening at the same time. And I think that, you know, what what I think scares me is, you know, the kind of dystopia that a book like Sapiens kind of talks about is, you know, the irrelevance of people that might come from robotics and technology and what we're all already seeing play out happen with that. But I think that the hope, and, and the hope that can come with that is, I am now looking at technological solutions to bring tra you know, transparency to supply chains, to eradicate child uh, labor, right? What I can also tell you, though, is you know, the dark web is a place where you can use technology to enable child trafficking and slavery. So it's what we decide to do with it as a society. And what the most important thing for me is that people engage and people decide to force us all to bring humanity and morality and an ethical grounding to how we choose to use our technology. Because if we don't have that, if we separate our humanity from the technology, we are going to find ourselves in a world that we do not want to see. Yes, and that it, the small choices are so interconnected with like the larger social movements, right? Like, for example, how we're using technology, I mean, how we use it in medicine, how we're using it in the workplace, like to your point, the hopefulness that you see in terms of unwinding supply chain and where are things coming from, I mean, all the advances in blockchain and AI and what that can be used for. But then there's also this notion of how we're intending to use it. I guess the question I have is like when we're using technology in small ways, I think of when I try to just set up dinner plans with a friend in my life, how impossible that is becoming. <laughs> Do you find things like that a challenge? Like we're, we're trying to use technology to decrease isolation, but then the technology is getting in the way of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that you have to say to yourself, the more we decide to engage 
on a technological platform, the more that we decide to communicate by email and on, you know, on a digital platform, and the less we decide to have human human interaction, I think that's going to come at an incredible cost to us all. And that's that is the isolation and despair that I think is playing out uh, in our society. I think that's playing out in our children. With we are going to look back in history as to what is causing. All of these young men, and they are primarily men. I know there's a couple of women here and there, but they are primarily men who are pick your gang violence, everything from ISIS to the school shootings to the church bombings, right? True. Um, what is causing this, right? And it, they're young. They're young. You know, whether it's in New Zealand or it's in Louisiana or Newtown, Connecticut, what is causing all of it? And there is to me, in a world where we see global connectivity, but there's no local connectivity anymore. And what I think, my husband and I, I don't think have seen my son since the prom. He goes to, to a school that ended about two weeks ago. And every single day, he's in another friend's pool or they're playing basketball. And all we keep saying to ourselves, that's okay. He's playing with real human friends, <laughs> <laughs> engaged in real human behavior. <laughs> and uh, you know what that's okay it's all right and you know even if they're doing some really stupid things they're all real human kids engaged in real human behavior and I'm really happy about that I'm really happy about that I don't want him behind a video screen talking and playing with his friends I want them touching and feeling and hanging out and like just being with each other right and enjoying each other's company and yeah, they might do some really stupid things in the middle, but that's okay. <laughs> Says the mom of a 17-year-old. <laughs> I know. And trust me, I never thought those, really, I'm just at a point where I'm just like, at least they're not, you know, I have, I, you know, in the cyber world, I had to watch people, their friends be in virtual worlds, right? Yes. I don't want that. I don't want that, right? I, I have come to understand the value of taking the time to make the dinner plans and not canceling them with your friends and not rushing them. And how much joy that brings you to spend real time and really connect with a person in real time. And what we're losing as a society from that all going away. Because it's only when, you know, there are studies on this, right? Yes, and there's lots of them empathy and compassion studies that the closer you are physically to someone, the less likely you are to harm them. And so the anonymity that this tech, that technology is bringing is what's causing us to engage in this insanely insulting mean language. And, you know, the Microsoft study that was done with Amazon, I think it's Microsoft, right. Or, uh, with on Twitter that showed that the bot chats that took all the Twitter feed, it took them like how long, less than, you know, a few hours within a day to become completely racist, anti-Semitic bots. Oh and my God. It was that fast. That is so disheartening. It was a day. And it's just, it just, you know, to me, that's not because the bots are a problem. That's because the humans. Because we're feeding it. Problem. We're feeding the algorithm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the humans. It's what the humans are saying on Twitter that are a problem. Yes, it. It is getting really wild out there. Like I was at South by Southwest earlier this year and I forget the exact name of the office, but literally London has appointed a minister of, I think, loneliness. And that is like 
so wonderful and so sad that that even needs to be a thing. Yeah. Right? That this is becoming such a pervasive problem. And the downstream effects of it are the cases that you worked on, right? Like, I imagine if you stood on a pile of cases, right? Like, I'm sort of visually picturing you standing on cases that look like flat planes, right? That when we stack them up and you look down from the top, it sounds like some of the things we were just talking about are this through line between all of these different types of human rights violations and murder and all of this really horrific stuff that starts at such a young age from something that people are only just now beginning to take seriously in terms of loneliness and isolation and depression and mental health. And I do think, I think that is what, I think we're going to look back and say it was a big part of it. I don't, I don't think it's the only part of it, no. but I think it's going to look back and say, you know, there was this belief for the longest time, right? Particularly with the white supremacy issue, that that is something, you know, they were like howling in the woods and, you know, yeah, they've all found themselves online and that's, and the whole online community thing where, you know, people who could, uh, were not able to find themselves now can all gravitate and support each other online. That's a real thing. I get that. But the idea of acting on, you know, we used to believe it used to be like, you know, your old crazy uncle at Thanksgiving who was like the the crazy racist, sexist, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, look at who's doing the shootings and look at who's doing the church bombings. It's young kids, right? The people, they're in their young 20s. And already radicalized. Yeah. And one, yeah, they're finding each other online. But two, why are they looking to find each other online? And I think why they're looking, they're looking to belong, right? They're yes. feeling isolated. They're feeling alone. They're not part of They're looking for a community. And, you know, there is this kind of gang tribal thing because I think we're inherently as humans, you know, um, wanting to be part of a, a group, a tribe, right? We, we want it was for our safety originally yeah. and still still is in some ways. Um, but, you know, I think we often go back to the image of cavemen and cave women and the repercussions of being cast out of the tribe at that level, at its most simplistic. But it makes me so happy women like Brene Brown are out there doing the work and doing the research that she's doing just on belonging, for example. Yeah. yeah. And so, But I also, what scares me about this is there is an inherent power issue that's going on with this as well. And that power issue, I think, is having such a deep and negative impact on women. There's a very, you know, funny story in my own family. My when my grandmother died, she died in her late 80s. She had a British citizenship, and right about three years before she died, she uh, calls me up and asks me to get her American citizenship. And you know, I'm not couldn't understand why, but I go through this whole process of helping her get her American citizenship, which is a, a pretty funny moment. In her mind, she was going to die, and she wanted to be reincarnated as an American woman, right? And because nobody had more rights or privileges, you know, to be able to live their life than an American woman, and you know, coming from a woman who had an eighth grade education and no ability to make free choices in her life, she saw my life as just my God, how, you know, this is how I want to come back. Right. 
I love and that she was doing the due diligence and like the get work in this life. Like I want <laughs> right. to, I want to really stitch this up in that next one. Right. So she's like, I, and I said, okay, here we go. And it was kind of a little funny because, you know, she was never going to pass the English test, but you know, we got her through, you know, we're cremating her with her American passport. Trust me. Right. But I sit there and I say, she's right about that, by the way, right? I look at an American woman as probably at the height, you know, I would not, I feel so fortunate as someone who wasn't born here. Nobody to me has, in some ways, more rights or privileges. You know, there's a few countries maybe here or there that you'd say, okay, you know, but I'd still take our diversity and our, our free thinking over that and the lack of, you know, being homogenous. But you know, I, you, American, I'm just telling you, the rights of American women are completely under attack right now. We are living in a, in a very kind of chaotic time. It is. I I feel like this could be another two-hour conversation I if I get going on this front. But, but this is why everyone needs to engage. When you say engage, what do you hope people listening do in terms of engagement? Right. Because because I hear that and I think like that's such a big nebulous call to action. What are ways that you feel like are most important or what are ways that you've seen be most effective? So, you know, I think that, you know, because we are all so different, it is what we all so different in terms of what we're willing to commit ourselves to. But there are a few things that I always go back to reading because I think they're important. One of them, interestingly, is. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to just remind us over and over again about the fact that we have a commitment to make to continue to our country uh, to create a more perfect union. But I think, you know, and I, and I should have actually done this before getting on this podcast, but one of the things that I think is very powerful is Ellie Wiesel's Nobel Peace Prize uh, speech. And he talks about the fact that there are periods in our time when human rights are being attacked, when people's dignity is being attacked, when basic rights are being attacked, uh, that staying neutral actually supports the people who are doing the tormenting or are doing the oppressing, that it is very important to take a side, that you have to take a side, and that the failure to take a side is completely supporting uh, the oppressor. And that is when human dignity and human rights, the most basic, basic human rights, will leave us. And, you know, that is, that is a lot of what is happening right now. We're talking about basic human rights when we're talking about certain levels of racism and sexism and anti-Semitism and, you know, the anti-immigrant sentiment is, that, that is happening. Yes. And so you have to take a side. Krishna, this has been such an informative and amazingly educational conversation. I think we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we did. We did. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for being you. Thank you for doing the work that you're doing. And thank you for being here in this conversation. Not at all. Thanks so much. Take care. Hey, it's Kara again. Wow. Wasn't Krishna so generous with her knowledge of such a complex issue like human trafficking? 
Wasn't she so generous with her hard-won lessons from work and life? Well, she was equally generous with the resources she mentioned in this episode, and also some that she sent to me after the fact. You can find all of those at levitalcoresalon.com, L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. Did you dig this podcast or what Krishna is doing out in the world? Well, please show your support. Here are some ideas and ways to do that. Go check out gracefarms.org or unchained.org to learn more about what Krishna is doing. Share this episode with one woman you know that might be interested in this topic or doing work adjacent to it. Or subscribe to Le Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. Before I bounce today, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to CJ Sereno, who is Krishna's assistant and helped get us all scheduled and technology all worked out. So this was such a seamless podcast to record. Thanks, CJ. Also, I want to thank producer Craig Snyder, my virtual assistant Darlene Victoria, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone, and the High Dials for the theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.